Very, very, very quiet. Good morning. Good morning. I am excited to be here with you guys. Who's ready to learn something today? Amen. 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 All right. Well, as I get started this morning, let me say thank you once again. Every time I have the opportunity to stand in front of you, I am extremely thankful for the privilege of opening up God's Word. And so this morning, let me add to that thank you some other thank yous. I want to say some thanks for the women's brunch yesterday. Let me just say this. Let me thank the women's leadership team, Jane Keller, Ashley Bagley, Morgan Jones, and Julie Francis. The decorating team, Ashley Morgan, her son Micah came out for a long time and helped. Tina Santum and my own bride, Sarah. All the casserole bakers, I'm not even sure who you all were, but since I didn't get to taste any of it, I, um, you know, thank you, but I wish I'd had some. So there's that. Uh, Shiloh for leading worship, the child care all-star, Steve Smith, who came back here to help do some child care. Andrew Ruello for helping get some decor made. Gary Roberson for providing some logs. All the dads, granddads, brothers, or sons who bore some of the child care load so that their special woman or women could come. And last but not least, each and every woman who was able to come for the first major women's event of the year. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Each and every one of you. Men's retreat's coming up. Just saying, it's still coming. Next month, end of next month. So guys, um, it's, it's just coming. But just to hold on to the mentor tree, in less than three weeks, you saw a little promo for it, we have um, the talent show, or lack thereof, coming up less than three weeks on a Saturday night, April 8th. From what I understand, dinner's around 6. We're going to have spaghetti dinner. Talent show's at 7. I'm going to be singing. I haven't sung uh, here yet, so I'm looking forward to that. And there's some other talent signed up. I believe there's a pastoral presence, some kind of something that's going to happen. And you can imagine who the other pastors are and so what that might be like. And so come for that. Uh, if you want to sign up, even my, my youngest Tobias wants to come up on the stage and sing a worship song. So I don't know if we're going to actually do that or not, but he's pretty geared up for it. And so this is a family event. Soto S at kpc.org. Whatever your talent, juggling, singing, uh, dramatic acting. Uh, I understand there's a Batman monologue or some such thing going on. So you never know what you're going to get. Come on out. Let's do it as a family together. We're going to have a great time. As a way of introducing this message today, I have a lot to say to you, but I want to visually set the stage. There's a commercial that uh, I saw. It's a Canadian commercial that was trending on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. So if you happen to see it, you get to watch it again. But if you haven't, then I want you to see this thing because it really captivated me. And it, it's a beautiful illustration of what the church could and should be like. But it's done in a different way. It's not about the church at all, but you'll see what I mean. It's a beautiful commercial. So let's run this commercial and then I'll get started. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. 
And the whole, whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in a parable, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some one hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here then the parable of the sower explained, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown into his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and he has no root in himself. It endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as your word goes out, as it already has been going out through song and through prayer, may you till our hearts and make it good soil. May you prepare our hearts to receive deeply this very, very important word. Because, Lord, as you speak to us about community, as you speak to us about being a fellowship together. This is a truth that is vitally important to you, to your name, and to your glory, and to your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect the seed falling and the enemy snatching it away. I pray that it wouldn't fall among the rocks and grow and eventually fail. I pray that it wouldn't fall among the thorns where it's easily choked out by the matters of the world that wait for us outside these doors, or maybe in our own minds even right now, but instead that it would fall on that fertile, root-bearing soil, that we might become changed and be used for your glory and your purpose, that we might be able to sit around the same table together as we go through this life. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Acts, and we're going to be continuing in Acts 18. So if you're not there, you can be turning there, swiping there, scrolling there, whatever it is to take you there. Acts 18. Acts is uh, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you get to Acts. So that's where we'll be. We're going to pick up right where Pastor Steve left off last week. We've had an interesting three weeks here at the church. You may remember that about three weeks ago, we had a sermon on the desolation of smog, which was by far one of the coolest sermon titles of all time. But it was the, the answer to grumbling and negativity is gratitude. And so I was sharing that with Josiah, since he's not in here at the dinner table. He said, gratitude is a lot like having a great attitude then, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it, of course it is. Of course it is. That's exactly what I'd never thought of before. So, great job. 
And then from there, last week, Pastor Steve talked about we need to be faithful, full of faith. And so this week, we're talking about extraordinary or extraordinary. We're going to kind of dig into that a little bit. But in Acts 18, we're going to pick up the narrative right where it left off for two verses, and then we're going to get into the meat of what we're talking about today. So in Acts 18, verses 22 and 23, it says this. And when he, Paul, had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Persia, strengthening all of the disciples. Now, if you were like me, you missed a very important thing here. In verse 22, it was the end of Paul's second missionary journey. So I have a little map for you right here, just because it's always good to have a map. And if you, right in the middle of that little map, you have Ephesus right there. It's above Crete and Rhodes. And then you follow that line down to the right. You get to Caesarea up to Antioch. That's it. That's the end of the second missionary journey. And in verse 23, he starts his third missionary journey. So let's have our little picture here. And we're going to pick up at Antioch over there, loop around to Tarsus, over there to Iconium, all the way back to Ephesus. So there you go. That sets you up for next week with Pastor Steve again, because I'm not talking about Paul anymore today. But you now know that he's ended his second missionary journey, and he's beginning his third missionary journey. But while he's doing all that traveling, stuff is still happening in Ephesus and later in Corinth. And that's where our passage is today, starting in verse 24, with a man named Apollos and a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who we were introduced to last week. Let me read these verses for you, 24 to the end of the chapter. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So verses 24 and 25 tell us about this man named Apollos. He was from Alexandria in northern Africa. It's in Egypt, named after Alexander the Great. I have a little pretty map up there for you, just in case you have no idea where Alexandria is. There it is, down there at the, uh, the mouth of the Nile. It became a huge and very important city during this time. It was so important that the education there would have fused Greek, Jewish, and Oriental traditions. It's where the Septuagint of the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek, which is by far the, one of the most important translations we have. Our scholars still use it today. It was the future birthplace of some of our church fathers, uh, Clement, Origen, and Athanasius, if you know any of those names, we're all born there. And it housed the largest and best known library in the world at that time, the Alexandrian Library which eventually burned down, which makes every history major like myself or people who just cares about old things cringe to think of all that was lost in this tragic 
library fire. But what about the man Apollos himself? Well, he knew the Old Testament because of his upbringing. It says that he was fervent in spirit. Now that translation in Greek means a steady boil, kind of under the surface. If you're boiling something and it's, it's not quite really bubbly, but it's, it's right there and you can see it shimmering, that's, um, that's how Apollos was. So he was fervent in spirit. He had this underlying current to him, okay? Kind of a lot like Pastor Steve when he's up here. He's, he bounces around an awful lot. I'm not, I'm not that, but he's, he, he does that. And so that kind of idea. He was fervent in spirit, but not filled of the spirit. Okay? He had an understanding of repentance from John's baptism. Uh, repentance, but not faith in Christ. Uh, he had a pre-Pentecost view. He knew a lot of facts but he didn't understand the consequences of those facts. One commentator says it this way, to know only John's baptism was to not know about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, the Lord's Supper, the first church at Jerusalem, or the mission of the apostles. That's, see, that's, that's a lot left out, right? Um, he knew a lot, but he didn't know all of it. Apollos, by many scholars think, and, and it could very well be true, that he was the author of our book of Hebrews in the Bible. We don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, but it is a pretty solid theory. And yet there was an encounter that transitioned him from having so many gaps to being a New Testament letter writer. Something happened in there. And what happened was verse 26. He encountered a simple married couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, as Pastor Steve told us last week, just like Paul. And when they heard Apollos, what they heard was, was the gaps. There was nothing that he taught that was wrong, but there were some gaps there. And so they took him aside privately, and they taught him what he was missing. In a very real sense, they discipled him. You know, the scriptures are interesting because it says that he taught accurately in verse 25, and then in verse 26, it, it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you're accurate and more accurate. How does that work? Well, if we're driving down the road and we're sitting next to each other and a red car passes us and we say, hey, did you see that car? And I said, yeah, it was a red car. It just went right past us. And you say, it was a red car. You know what? It was a red soft turbo. It was probably about a 1989. It had a spoiler on the back and these aluminum wild wheels. And it just flew right past us, didn't it? See, I was accurate. It was a red car. You were more accurate because you were able to fill in all these details that I didn't quite know. And that's how Apollos was and that's what they did for him. They were a simple, lay, married couple. Teaching, discipling, a scholar named Apollos. And one commentary said this, it was providential that this valuable man came to Ephesus just at this time. The teachers he needed to complete his education had also been providentially brought to Ephesus just at this time. Paul was not there, and he would not get there for some time. Not even a congregation was there. Only a humble tent maker and his equally unpretentious wife were there to take Apollos in hand. But would this eloquent, able university graduate condescend to go to school with a tent maker, a common artisan, 
and to his wife, who had never attended a university. The best university training Apollos ever received was given to him in that tentmaker's shop. And among the greatest services these two ever rendered the Lord was what they did for Apollos. In the whole story of Acts, there is no picture that is more ideal than this of Apollos and Aquila and his wife. Isn't that fantastic? All that education, all that scholarship, and this simple couple was used by the Lord to fill in those blanks. In verses 27 and 28, it says that Apollos left for Achaia, which eventually landed him in Corinth, according to 19.1. And in a very real sense, in 1 Corinthians, we see the fruition and the completion of this verse, where Paul says that I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And you see in verse 27 that because of the impact that these two had on him, when he arrived in Corinth, he was able to greatly help those who through grace had believed. And Paulus goes on to probably be the greatest evangelist the early church ever had. And all because of this simple married couple stepping into his life. So what? How does all that you just said, Pastor Chris, intersect with my life in 2017? Thank you so much for asking that question. You know, right here in my notes, it addresses those questions. So praise the Lord, we are right on the same page. I am just tickled pink about that, as my granddad would say. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this, we need each other physically, emotionally, intellectually. We need each other if we're going to know anything, even ourselves. Today's passage is about a man, an exceptional man, a man who the very pages of Scripture proclaim to be one of the greatest evangelists of the early church. It's about the journey that man took to become all God intended him to become. It's also about a simple, unassuming, spirit-led married couple, a married couple who deeply impacted the early church through the living of their very normal lives. So which one is extraordinary? Is it the exceptional man or the impact-making married couple? Let's look at Apollos. Is it Apollos who is extraordinary? No. In fact, he was a very ordinary man. Great training and education? Undoubtedly. Scripture tells us he was trained and educated, smart, articulate, focused, and driven, yet flesh and blood just like each and every person sitting in this room. Well, then maybe it's Priscilla and Aquila. No. They were an ordinary married couple. Deeply impactful? Clearly. Once again, Scripture details them as such. Hardworking, spirit-led, simple, unassuming, yet not so different from many married couples in this very sanctuary. And if you don't view yourself that way, more than likely you're aiming for it in one way or another. No, it's not each of them in and of themselves that were extraordinary. It's when the Lord knits them together that collectively they became extraordinary. They became extraordinary. Isn't that just like God to take that which is commonplace and make it exceptional? To take the lowly and raise them up and to take the wise and bring them to bear for his purposes? Apollos was gifted and talented and willing to be used and was being used, but he was not all that he could be. 
He needed someone to come along and speak into his life and fill in the gaps. Priscilla and Aquila were co-laborers with the man, the myth, the legend, Paul himself. But they weren't traveling the world, planting churches. They did what they could, where they could. And God used them to speak into Apollos' life, and it was forever changed. But why did they do it? The why questions, that's what drives us. Why did they do it? Why is your discipleship pastor? You would want me to talk about how they discipled him, and that's why they did it, because they were fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission, and they were. But I want to tell you that as important as it was for them to fill in those blanks, it's, it's equally important for them to understand that they had to step into relationship with Apollos. And so that's why when we talk about discipleship at KPC, it's three words, intentional, relational, discipleship. If we don't have relationships with people, we will not become all that we're supposed to become. And that's when we get to the real root of what we're going to talk about. KPC, I've been here for about 10 and a half months now. My family and I have fallen in love with this church body. And for those of you that are being discipled, yes, I mean the word love the way that we define it when I say that. But I really do love this church. And it's because I love you all that I want to make this very personal for each of us in these next few minutes. Are you ready for that? Because I don't know that I'm ready for that. All right, we're going to try. We're going to see how it goes. Too many times, too many people have told me stories of loneliness. Story after story of I don't really know anybody. It feels cliquish. I'm lonely. If I stopped coming, would, any, would anyone even know or care? And on and on and on. Now, church, there's always two sides to every coin. I know as well as you do that sometimes people don't make up much of an effort to get involved, and they have to own that. Matt Chandler, the pastor of Village Church in Texas, says it this way, if all you know is Sunday morning at our church, then you only know a little bit. If all you know is Sunday morning plus a small group, you know more. But if all you know is Sunday morning plus a small group plus you actively serve, you know a whole lot. And so I want you to hear me that if, if you're in that crowd that feels lonely and you feel like you're, you're not quite fitting in and you're not trying to get into a small group and you're not trying to figure out a place to serve, then you gotta jump in there and you gotta do that with us. But, before we just assume that every person that has shared their stories of loneliness with me is just a lazy, introverted, Sunday-only Christian, because that's what we think, right? What if the problem isn't them? What if it's you? And what if it's me? What if it's we as a church body? What if we're the problem? Or at least part of it? And I'm not saying it's intentional. In fact, let me clearly say that I think it's entirely unintentional. I don't think anyone wakes up on Sundays, comes here, and hopes to make people feel lonely or disconnected. I don't think anyone thinks that. If you do, shame on you. But I don't think anyone feels that way. 
I sure don't, and I don't believe any of you do either. But sometimes things are unintentional because we lack the discipline to be intentional. The bottom line is it's happening. And if I asked for a show of hands for all those who struggle with feeling like they're on the outside looking in, I'm pretty sure most of you would be shocked to see how many hands went up. Yet, I believe the shock would wear off rather quickly because you kind of know it's true. But why change? To be a friendlier church? To make some new friends? Okay, I got it, Chris. How about to impact someone's life just like Aquila and Priscilla impacted Apollos? That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. I can tell you that all of those are really good answers to change the culture of our church, but not one of them, or even all of them, is the biblical answer. So KPC, the longer I've been in ministry, the more convinced I have become that a large theme of God's redemptive story is wrapped up in answering a question from Genesis chapter four. It's the question that Cain asked God after he killed his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And throughout the entire pages of scripture, God emphatically and repeatedly says, yes, yes, yes you are. You are your brother's keeper. And so now let's look at these final verses together. This is where I've been building to the entire time. I'm gonna bring the plane around for a landing. I'm gonna head towards the runway. These final two verses, and I'm going to tie it all together for you. But right now, my prayer is that, just like I prayed at the beginning, that you would keep that soil tilled in your heart because you've got to let this sink down into you, what I'm about to say. If you want to flip over, you certainly can. John chapter 13. We're going to listen to Jesus speak about this for a second. And I think this will be eye-opening to many of you. But this is the answer to the why question. The biblical reason why we should be better. John 13, 34 and 35, just two verses. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now this is super easy to miss, so let me make sure you get it. In verse 34, Jesus commands us, commands us, commands us to love one another just as he loves us. You see that, right? That's right there, verse 34. Now take that into verse 35 and hear what it says. By loving each other the same way I have loved you, all people will know that I am at work in this world and that my followers are doing that same work if you have love for one another. Do you see? So the reason, the biblical reason why we are our brother's keeper and the reason why it's not okay to have even a hint of a climate of loneliness and isolation within our church, or any church for that matter, and the reason why Pris Priscilla and Aquila couldn't help but step into Apollos' life 
is because we are first and foremost commanded by Jesus to love one another. Commanded. And secondly, the way we love each other directly correlates to how well we're making Christ known in this world. When we love one another, we are bearing witness to this world about the God we serve. Conversely, when we do not actively and intentionally love each other, we diminish the testimony of God to this world. And God is very invested in making himself known to this world. There is a direct correlation between the way we love each other and the glory and the testimony we are to the world. A direct correlation. When we do not step into loving each other, we become just another social club that meets at the same time at the same place. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, redemption proclaiming or God glorifying about that. But when we do intentionally step into loving each other, the same way that Christ loves us, we can't help but be living witnesses of redemption. And God receives tremendous glory for his name. You can see all of this illustrated in John 17 in the High Priestly Prayer, verses 20 through 23. I encourage you to chew on that this week. Just take chapter 17 and chew on it. Verses 20 through 23 illustrate it beautifully. But basically it comes down to this. It's 2017. We are actively pursuing the establishment of a new normal here at our church. These last eight years are not an accurate representation of what this church body is capable of. We've been through too much. The church has been through so much. You can't pull on the last year, eight years to, to set some kind of standard. So we are stepping away from being a hope deferred church and into a hope realized church. We're clearing away the smog of negativity and grumbling and embracing the attitude of, or the great attitude of gratitude. Likewise, we need to embrace that God takes all of our ordinariness and makes us collectively extraordinary. Only when we together as a community step into loving each other the way Jesus loves us. And none of that is easy. None of it. In fact, without the Spirit of God at work in each of our lives, it's not just hard, it's impossible. Biblical love is a supernatural thing, inspired and empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. Often it's not cool, it's not hip, it's not flashy. Rather, it's grinding, self-sacrificing, constant, and downright hard. But KPC, I stand here this morning to proclaim to you that it's also life-giving and life-changing. It's glorious and it's grace. It's hard and it's holy. It's meaningful and it's messy. And I just wanted to keep using different alliteration words, but I stopped. I'm just telling you that the only reason we can love at all is because Christ first loved us. This is high bar Christianity. I told you in my first sermon here that that's why I'm here. I told you that. I've been called here for this purpose and for this reason. To lend my voice to the voice of your other pastors. To lend my head to the wisdom of your session. To lend my heart to embrace the work the Spirit of God is doing in this place. 
and to lend my hands to reach out to each and every one of you who calls KPC home and say, you are not alone. You do not have to travel this road by yourself. I am accepting the call to be my brother's keeper. That is the high bar of our faith. We need each other. We are commanded to love each other. As a church and as a beacon to our culture, we will rise or fall on our love for one another. We will. Apollos showed humility when this simple married couple approached to teach him a more accurate way. Aquila and Priscilla showed great love in stepping out to fill in the blanks for such an educated man. Because of their love, Apollos was able to effectively water what Paul had sown, and the Lord reaped the harvest. We each have a part to play. Every person matters. That's why I called every woman forth to come to the brunch yesterday. It's why I'm challenging every man to come to the retreat next month. It's why I'm calling the entire church to come to the night of community for the talent show in three weeks. God can take each of our ordinariness and make us an extraordinary community. He did it with the early church and he can absolutely do it again. Now, believe it or not, I could keep going. But I think I've said enough for today, at least giving you enough to chew on. So I'd like to invite the altar ministers up to go into a little time of prayer. And so let me just ask you, as we begin to close this down, would you come take advantage of this time of prayer? You don't have to come up here. You can pray in your seats just as easily. And yet there's community when you come to pray with somebody. Maybe there's someone sitting right beside you and you could reach out and just have pray with you. But I just want to challenge us, church. We have got to begin to step into community together. We have got to let go of this isolation and this loneliness. I know it's not on purpose, but like I said, sometimes unintentional happens when intentional is not happening. So we've got to start being intentional about it. Would you come and commit yourself or recommit yourself to embracing a culture of love which is only done through the Spirit of God and take up the challenge to be your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper? Romans 15, 7 says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Such a beautiful verse. Let us enter into a time of welcoming each other as we pray. Altar ministers, come on forward. As soon as we've had some time to pray, I'll close this down with a benediction in just three minutes. So feel free to pray where you are or with some people as we just take a minute.